Hi everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news, stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry and back with me today, I've got Indy from the Somex team and joining Indy and I this week, we have someone who we once described as an indefatigable healthcare whirlwind, entrepreneur, investor, Ned, could go on. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, Rachel Murphy. Uh, Brill, thanks Henry, delighted to be here. Fab. And uh, Rachel, how's your week been so far? Been very good, thanks, mate. Been been more of an actual week of uh, of working than I'd anticipated, but um, yeah, not uh, not so bad. Half the week in London, and then came home uh, last night. So we had uh, COVID in the old household again. So uh, I had to avoid coming home for a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, yeah, all good, all good now. You've been really unlucky with that, haven't you? That's been that's been around the house a few times. Well, I think that's the twenty-year-old uh, stepson. He's around everyone's house, mate. So um, I'm, I'm obviously putting holding him entirely responsible for the fact uh, that he's <laughs> an end of it again. And as a twenty-year-old, he would absolutely not be listening to this podcast. So he'll never find out you said that. Indy, how's your week been so far? Yeah, really nice, thank you. A bit more of a chill one by the sounds of things, but had a great biotech event at Pfizer earlier in the week uh, with Jess and James, our co-founders, which was fantastic. So yeah, good bump. I've been uh, I've been up in London as well, which is a sort of West Country bumpkins. Very exciting. <laughs> big buildings and cars and stuff up there. Um, yeah, it was great. We did a, um, a brunch event for one of our clients. Uh, brunch, I said brunch, it was at 6am. A breakfast event for one of our clients um, with a load of life and science uh, VCs. Really, really fascinating panels, all unfortunately under Chatham House Rules, so I can't tell you about any of it. Anyway, shall we dive into this week's news? Uh, yep, sounds good. On to our first story. So first story this week is the digital future of men's health, which is coming to us from Trends in Urology and Men's Health, a, uh, not a publication we've done much with before. The digital future of men's health. Rach, you wanted to jump in on this one. What did you, uh, what did you make of the piece? Um, well, an interesting one. So but as I was reading this, this piece, I remembered uh, how, um, show my age here, I remembered in the in the 90s, it was a reference to the 90s that got me. And I'm stuck in the 90s from a uh, like in the old hard house and my musical escapades. But I also remembered in the 90s, poems were very trendy for boys, um, which bears no resemblance to the article at all. But uh, it, it spurred my uh, spurred my memory, uh, spurred my memory on that. Um, it was clearly an era that I uh, that nice. I, I appreciated. Um, but but it was uh, it was an interesting article for me, I think. Um, and I know a couple of the companies referenced. So I know Sam at Newman uh, and um, I think we've just made a hire from Preppy. Uh, so uh, interesting to see that there are, you know, um, specific solutions being called out uh, for, for for men from a digital health perspective. Uh, so I guess more more of that probably required. I completely agree. It's interesting, isn't it, that we there's lots of research into why men are more reticent to talk about their health, why men are more reluctant to, why uh, how society propagates men not talking about their health, um, and that's not really necessarily covered in this. It looks more at the digital impacts of it, but it's uh, yeah, well worth reading as a study. I think one of the most important things that they talk in there is about um, 
health literacy and that men are much more likely to minimize or inaccurately report symptoms. And this is a, a sort of symptom of manning up culture and being, you know, being a bloke and being really tough, things that I evidently am not. Um, but it's, yeah, there's this difficulty of communicating emotions that talks about and the societal stigma around it. It's a really interesting read about not just the impact that digital technology can have, because obviously you can anonymize things and you can talk to someone or talk even to AI that is not an actual person. But it's a really interesting look at how digital technology generally can help remove those stigmas, which I think is really important because we don't, arguably, we don't talk about men's health as much as we should. No, I just thought they made an interesting comparison to sort of how digital men's health is fairly uh, in its infancy stages compared with femtech or female technology digital health solutions, which have generated, you know, sort of over a billion US dollars in global revenue and seems to get a lot more attention. I mean, we don't, or at least I'm not aware of, you know, a men tech sort of terminology. So it's definitely interesting and nice to see that that is starting to, we're starting to see more startups in that area as well. I um I was struck by the uh, I was struck by the alcohol dependency uh, double the amount of men um, so some of the facts and figures in there so that that surprised me uh, and for somebody who's eight and a half years sober I probably know more about that than most uh, but um, and the suicide rate uh, again those bits really kind of leapt leapt out to me reinforcing I guess Indy's point that there is a a real need for um, you know for doubling down in that area. I think those are both really valid points. I think I think one of the reasons that femtech in particular, and, and femtech as a term is also contentious to a certain degree, um, but I think one of the reasons that femtech funding has moved ahead is that traditionally um, medicine, healthcare, and arguably society has been set up sort of around men to benefit men. And so when people recognise that disparity, that discrepancy between the money that was going into femtech, naturally lots of money then flows into it, that pushes it up. And that's a good thing. Like, there's no way of arguing that that's anything other than a good thing. And now maybe it is time to look at issues around alcohol dependency or suicide or other things that affect men more so than women and, and pour money into that. But yeah, a very interesting study and raises more questions than it answered for me. Right. So let's move on to story number two. Right, this one is very close to my heart and also very close to Rachel's, I imagine. The NHS is forking out £2,500 a shift to agency nurses to stop the staffing crisis. This is coming to us from the Metro. So, Rachel, the NHS is paying up to £2,500 a shift for agency nurses in a bid to help stop a severe staffing crisis. Is this clickbait, this has only happened once, nonsense journalism, or is this a thing that is happening day to day in trusts up and down the land? I mean, the sad reality is that this isn't clickbait. This is happening and has been happening for a long time. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't think it is absolutely staggering. Um, and the reality is workforce planning and demand management aren't actually that complex to try and solve. Um, and I think if you add to that the third party costs that we get, um, you know, using things like Patchwork, Lantern. Now, I'm not knocking any of those solutions. Um, but again, you know, you've got agency costs. You've then got, you know, the margin on top of that. And the question that I would be asking is, you know, why are we not leveraging things like NHS jobs for this? 
Um, we're, we're in a, a position at the minute, and I guess, sorry, this is my second and final point on this. So I think there's an easier way to do it. I think the technology is there to make it a reality. But we're also in the environment where we've got nurses striking because of salary, permanent nurses. And can you imagine how insulting it would be to be probably paid a tenth of that of the interim that you're working alongside and you're probably showing the bloody ropes to. I mean, the, you know, and I say this comfortably as somebody who for 25 years was an interim. You know, I, I obviously hold a strong view here. This isn't rocket science to solve, um, but we've got to get a bit better at some of the absolute basics around workforce management. And I think I'm, you know, comfortable saying that Hunt referenced this in the budget speech yesterday uh, around needing to you know really have a look at this area yeah look i have i have some i have some fairly strong opinions on this i worked at lantern for a couple of years and i think that there is definitely a role technology can play um i think in creating a better work environment first and foremost in supporting people in work but yeah there's there's, there's a huge financial argument here I think whilst it was referenced, we're recording this on Friday, and whilst it was referenced in the budget yesterday, uh, it was only last Sunday or last Saturday where the Chancellor basically said, your nurses are not getting 5% on top of RPI, which is would have taken it to about 17.5%. When you look at what they've earned over the last 20 years or 15 years, I suppose, and where those pay freezes have come in and public sector pay has been frozen, that's how far behind they are. That's how far behind they would, that's how much they would need to be caught up to in order to get to the same standard of living and the same disposable income, the same income, let alone disposable, as they were at, at 2010, 2012. So it's, it, it's, it's a simple one to solve and it's a difficult one to solve. Ultimately, the answer to this is going to be money. And then the counter argument to that is always going to be, from those who are fiscally conservative, is always going to be, well, where does that money come from? It's, it, but it's heart, It's genuinely heartbreaking. Heartbreaking is definitely the word that I would use. I mean, I can really offer a perspective here only from my own experiences working as a healthcare assistant. Um, and there is a knock-on effect. Unfortunately, it causes disruptions within the ward as well. Agency work don't necessarily have that long relationship that, that local NHS nurses have with patients. And sometimes it can, I unfortunately, cause a little hostility as much as it, nurses don't want that to happen between local nurses and knowing that their counterparts and their colleagues brought in by agencies are being paid a higher salary rate for essentially doing the same, the same work. It's, it's a really difficult one. Yeah, there's no Rachel. If you were if you were to be given, I appreciate you you are you are heavily involved in NHS jobs. If you were to be given carte blanche to approach this problem in a Rachel Murphy way, how would you approach it? Well, I don't think that um, the technology is the the sole way to fix it. I think that there needs to be a um, you know there needs to be a a way of working across agencies but but by that I'm not talking digital agencies I'm talking hospitals we need to understand what the demand is uh, and we need to have a way of being able then to almost redeploy uh, frontline staff across locations so I don't believe for one minute that every hospital is at capacity every minute of every day if we had one login god forbid um, you know across different hospitals etc uh, etc et then you start to spread the um, you know spread, spread the opportunity a little wider now that doesn't mean that you know any anybody can rock up with a skill set 
but but I think there's there's a, a way of pooling this, um, and there's a way of managing resource in a managing resources, which in this capacity are people, in a much better way uh, than um, hitting the phone and bringing in agency staff. But I I think it it really it will be underpinned with technology. But it goes back to some basic basics around you know demand and supply. It's not rocket science. Mm. It's not. And you're talking about that single sign-on thing there. And I love the idea that everyone who works in healthcare and health tech in the UK just thinks of the idea of that as just just fairy tale. It's just poppycock. How could this possibly ever happen? It just feels to me like that's a really obvious step. We had Credentially's Kit Latham on here last week talking about how, you know, if you want to take your skill set to another trust, it's so, so difficult. There are so many barriers to do that in terms of onboarding and in terms of the process of getting you through and verified. It's just, it almost feels like these problems are very man-made. Like they're not, if everyone sat down and looked at it, you'd go, well, that's mad. It's absolutely mad that we're doing that. Surely if you are a nurse here, and as you say, there is demand in a neighboring trust, a demand in a neighboring PCM, whatever it is, then people can move around and you flow the workforce around to meet where the demand is. But it's it's made so difficult and they feel like very artificial barriers. I, uh, I think the, um, I was interviewed earlier this week around the public sector strategy for digital. Um, and, and this is one of the six objectives is, is not just across healthcare, but right across public sector. Now, you know, we've got to have baby steps on these things. That's, that's ambitious by 2025. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we absolutely need to, you know, concentrate on some of these uh, ways of being more efficient uh, than um, perhaps some of the, you know, AI and other bits and pieces. Some of this is, you know, these are simple things, really, before we get super sexy and exciting. Well, maybe I'm just getting a bit boring in my mid-40s. Who knows? <laughs> get the basics right and then, uh, yeah, and then build on from there. I think that's that's got to be the way we approach it. Shall we move on to story number three? Okay, so story number three. Story number three is coming to us from Republic World, but let's be honest, it came to us from pretty much every major news outlet in the world. I just thought Republic World's reporting was particularly nice. And that is that Twitter changes cost Big Pharma $15 billion. Nobody, of course, could possibly have predicted that making verification a purchasable product rather than an endorsement of authority could go badly wrong. Rachel Murphy, how did you react to finding out that the stock price of Eli Lilly, the big pharma company, uh, plummeted after a fake tweet from a verified, in inverted commas, account? I didn't expect it to happen so fast or be so dramatic, if I'm totally frank. However, the last couple of years should have taught me that anything can kick off at any point of time. Um, so I, uh, I think... I, I think this strays way beyond verification um, and identity. I think this is heading into cyber warfare territory, uh, not wanting to scaremonger, but I think it is. Um, and it's not an isolated incident. It has kicked off um, repeatedly. You know, there's been other um, other attempts to do similar since this happened. Uh, and it's it's inherent in... You know, somebody taking over the business, not really understanding what they've picked up, uh, wanting to go top down, um, 
uh, very hard and fast without understanding. Uh, and I mean, you know, we, we've all seen the news today with dictator and God knows what else beamed across the Twitter offices. But, you know, it's it's gone tits up um, pretty quickly. Uh, so, I mean, I, I feel for, the, you know, Eli Lilly. I have to say it's not a common uh, feeling for me for pharmaceutical companies, but <laughs> well, I really do. You know, no one needs the share price getting shafted in this freaking industry, in this market at the minute. Uh, so mm. I, but I, I don't think it's isolated. I think we're going to see more and more. Um, and I don't know whether we're going to see the collapse of the platform pretty in spectacular, fa- you know, fashion, but it's, it's not looking rosy at the minute. It definitely is not. Yeah, I don't. I, I never thought I'd hear you say, you know, my heart goes out to Eli Lilly. But I do get what you mean. Like, they're a company, right? And they do employ people. And those people have jobs and lives and mortgages and kids and things to look after and make sure they work. So no one, as you say, in this economy needs needs that happening. It's There are better places for people to discuss, you know, what's happening to Twitter. You know, there are other podcasts that kind of will deep dive into this. But I think what's interesting is we've seen this morning that 80, I think, 75% it's alleged of the workforce took up his offer to take three months of redundancy on uh, last Friday. And that means that by, I think he's been in charge a month, that's 88% uh, of workers will have left. The office doors have been locked this morning and are allegedly going to open again on Monday morning. It's um, it's messy, but I again, and this is the second sort of heartbreaking story in a row after that one that we talked about agency staff. Twitter's a really great resource for medics. It's a great, like MedTech Twitter and Medic Twitter are two incredibly active bits of the platform where people share news and views and articles and research and support one another and actually have quite quite often quite barbed conversations, but they're they're real communities. And it feels like there is no direct replacement for those communities and that that would be to our industry, a, a, a net loss, in my opinion. I think what concerns me is Elon Musk doesn't, he doesn't seem worried by this. I mean, there's a strong difference between wanting to increase free speech and simply enabling the distribution of false and like potentially dangerous news that have large consequences for big companies. Yeah, it's going to be a wild couple of weeks. I'm not leaving Twitter yet. I very much enjoy it. Uh, apparently, it's the most active the platform has ever been, which is a sort of maybe it's a reverse of rats leaving a sinking ship. Rats wanting to get onto a sinking ship. Is the ship sinking? Who knows? I think it's also like, I don't know, I can only talk for myself, but it's an element. It's, it's masochistic, isn't it? It's kicking off. It's a drama. Uh, I mean, that drives me back there to, uh, you know, if I hadn't been on back to back since eight, I would have been a bit more up to speed. Uh, but um, it's, you know, it's it's just another, it's a drama. And there's an element at the minute of a dictator and the underdog. And, you know, human nature doesn't like those things. Uh, so that will be yanking a raft of people in. It is, it, you're right. It's masochism. I'm probably more active on Twitter now than I've ever been. And yeah. I, maybe a part of me wants to be there when it died. Is that weird? I, I was there when Twitter died, kids. I don't know. Will it die? Who knows? Um, let's move on to story number four. So story number four, biotechnology is creating ethical worries. And we've been here before. This comes to us from Ask Technica. Indy, biotechnology is a particular interest of yours, something you were you studied extensively at university. Talk to me about the ethical worries around biotech at the moment and how we've been here before. 
Yeah, I mean, this article is particularly really, really interesting and raises up some really important questions. I mean, throughout university, I sort of studied some of the processes that they speak about throughout this article, such as CRISPR-Cas and dream driving, which is essentially um, a technique that can be used to manipulate gene editing and comes originally from, from bacteria that used it as a way to protect themselves from viruses. Now, these systems can be used essentially um, on human genes to eradicate certain diseases and genetic conditions. But then, of course, it comes into to the conversation, the ethical um, considerations about this. I mean, are we one to be playing with the gene and heritability of diseases or should we not allow nature to take its course. There have been instances in the past, which is spoken about throughout the article, where um, mutations have been engineered and have caused serious consequences negatively to, for example, three female embryos in China, which were um, a product of gene editing from a Chinese scientist. And these children will now have to carry out these mutations throughout the rest of their life, potentially carrying them on to their future offspring. So it's it's a very interesting conversation, something that I definitely have a lot of interest in. I will raise my hand up and say that I read this and I found the ethical kind of worries section of it fascinating. But I... I'm not. I'm not a massive fan of this. The modern trend of, of ignorance being a positive thing. I, but I am completely ignorant to all of the genetic stuff in this. So I, I have a lot of going away and reading to do around this because I think it's a genuinely fascinating topic. Was there anything, Indy, that you studied at university? Anything you read at university that you would recommend as a sort of a, a good way into learning about the ethics of genetics? I wish I could have an answer for you. I don't. Um, but what the point that you touched about upon this ignorance that you have, and I think that that is exactly what this article also makes a really important point. There is a massive lack in scientific publication around the genetic, the the use of genetic engineering. Um, and that's had a knock-on effect in allowing those societal fears to fester. I mean, People talk about, you know, frankenfoods and designer babies. And ultimately, you could argue it's had an effect on sort of culminating anti-vaccinate, anti-vaxxers. And um, it's definitely stirred up a, a lot of worry, I think. And I think that is because there isn't a lot of understanding about the effects that this can have both ethically and and genetically. Um, and I think it's definitely something that's it's really important that there's increased awareness on. I do believe that in the future, we're going to be seeing an awful lot more of genetic modification. For me with this one, I, uh, I struggle to understand the article. Uh, I've read it a couple of times. It's certainly not my area of expertise. Um, what it kind of brought up in me was two things. One, the element of God complex. Should we be playing with this? Now, that's not ethical. That's just a personal oh, it makes me a little bit edgy. Maybe that's because I don't know, you know, don't know much about it. Um, and it, it then, you know, if I'm totally honest, it then brought into my mind the, you know, was COVID cooked up in a lab? Um, and that's not that I'm a rampant conspiracy theorist by any stretch of any imagination. But the, as you know, as I was reading the article and the, you know, the kind of examples that were given, it, it lend, lends my thinking a little bit to rethink 
you know, was it? It's almost to a certain extent irrelevant because uh, we are where we are. But um, I do think that, um, you know, starting to play God is quite dangerous with that stuff. Um, the other bit I wanted to mention is, uh, and this isn't, you know, going as far as genetics, but we are, to your point, Indy, you know, you can get a bloody 3D printed steak, you know, and it's not meat. Um, so we're starting to mess and play, you know, the dolly, the sheep and all the rest of it. Um, probably share my age a bit here. Uh, but, um, you know, this this has been kicking around for a bit, um, albeit, yeah, on a personal level, I have to say it's not an area of expertise for me. I had entirely forgotten dolly the sheep was a thing. Well, that was like, what, mid-90s? Like, a while ago, mate. Sometime around then? Yeah. Lots and lots of ethical implications there. Lots of things to talk about with genes. If anyone listening to the pod has any recommendations for uh, a sort of a, a beginner's guide, a start for 10 on the ethics of biotechnology, I would be fascinated to hear that, um, to add to the stack of books that I've bought and I'm not getting read right now. Let's move on to our final story this week. Story number five, our final story this week is how Apple is empowering people with their health information. So this is an Apple press release on a news report by Apple on how Apple is doing good things with data. Um, so there's absolutely no chance of this of this having any bias in it whatsoever. The strapline of the article is, a new report shares the ways Apple products are helping users, developers, and health organizations advance personal health research and care. Now, I have a couple of Apple products, uh, but I generally have an analog watch and I have a very broken um, Huawei phone um, because I, I just like giving my data away. Um, but there have been loads of things recently about we know that Apple are moving into the health insurance market in or insure tech in 2024, or they're alleged to be doing so. It's been leaked that they're doing so, um, that lots of people have had genuine health breakthroughs through the data that their Apple Watches collect. It's very interesting to think that this could be a technology that, or a set of technologies that change the way we look at health. It also worries me a little bit because it is a private company, the biggest company in the world, owning lots and lots, billions of individuals' health data, essentially. Well, owning is probably not the right word, but having access to, and that worries me. Indy, you're, uh, you are a fitness fanatic. You're a CrossFitter. Are you, do you use any apps to track your, track your workouts, track your, your kind of your health when you're doing these things? Is that something that interests you? Are they Apple devices? Interesting question. So funnily enough, I am an avid Apple iPhone user. However, other than sort of the basic Strava for the occasional runs, I can't say that I particularly use Apple health much. I don't have an Apple watch. I don't like the idea of it telling me how little I've walked, but it's a very interesting and I think it's it will be fascinating to see sort of the outcomes from this. I mean, they are clearly trying to do what health experts and, and even what was discussed sort of at the event I was at earlier in the week have said is needed for so long, which is the availability of people's own health records that they have access to in a way that is easy to understand. This article discusses that Apple is making um, health records easily accessible to patients in over 800 institutions and across 12,000 locations, which is obviously, in my eyes, a great thing. I just think there's two considerations here to be made. One is 
truly how safe and secure is that data. Apple enables sort of second, third party fitness apps to connect with that data, but also if that data is to be used in things like clinical trials, which Apple has offered sort of users in the US the opportunity to participate in quite a few different researches that are named throughout this, this article, but also to think about sort of the socioeconomic impacts of that. Not everyone in the world is going to be able to have access to an Apple iPhone, to a, a Apple Watch, and therefore, how does that affect or skew sort of the representation of participants in these trials when when these data are being used essentially from people who do have the means to have this sort of technology? I think that's something that, yeah, is interesting and, and needs to be considered. So that's a really good angle and not something I've actually, not something I'd ever thought of at all. It's a very, very important thing to bear in mind. Rachel. Um, Apple health, health apps more generally, tracking of health apps, healthcare data and where it's stored and how it's shared, things like this. I imagine these are things that you've got at least one or two opinions on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and to be honest, I, I do track a lot of data. Um, so I not not using Apple devices, mind. I have a Mac. Um, I have a Fitbit. Um, I have a Lumen as well, actually, which is the latest edition, um, looking at hacking my metabolism. Mm. Um, but I, I track a lot of data um, and I, I guess I track it uh, probably with a wedding in mind, my own next year uh, and a reduction of uh, weight between now and then. Um, but but I, uh, I, I'm a bit of a data loser in so much as I like the information to help make, you know, make better choices. Uh, am I concerned about sharing it um, Probably not as much as I should be. Um, so, yeah, it just happens not to be Apple. Um, the Fitbit's a lot cheaper. It's more around 100 quid for a Fitbit. But but I, I, I think the thing for me, what, going back to the article, is what, what I took away from that was a, a push towards self-care um, and Apple wanting what we should all be wanting, which is that people start to take some responsibility for their own health care um, and that they start to make the right decisions and the right choices. Um, and it's giving you a tool that you can use. Yes, there's a price tag attached to it. Is it, you know, it's, it's not coming from a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a giving perspective, but I, the, the sentiment around it was about um, uh, owning your data, having access to your data, making better informed decisions. And if we go back, you know, to an NHS paperless 2020 and the program of work I ran for the NHS was around empowering the patient, was all about self-care uh, and about starting to make those informed decisions. So I think at the heart, it's probably well-intended. Um, of course, Apple are not going to start pushing Samsung products, um, especially if they're sponsoring the bloody effort. Uh, but um, that would be my that would be my two two pennies. It's very interesting, isn't it? I think something that something I've been thinking over the last month is that I I have a very visceral reaction to private healthcare companies having access to data, and yet I don't know what that's founded on because as you as we as we've well as we've said on this podcast multiple times before the interoperability is simply not there in the nhs ecosystem to make the best use of patient data and i've 
I, I, I need to go away and look at why when someone says to me, private company harvests or has access. There we go. The fact that I've used the verb harvest, right? Private company has access to healthcare data. I have this real gut, like, no, that belongs to me as an individual or, or it can be shared with a, a nationwide or national health service. I don't know why I think that. And I don't actually know that that's a particularly constructive reaction to have. So I think that's a, that's more of a me thing than, than anything else. But yeah, it's um, something I need to address. Well, this has become like therapy now, hasn't it? Which is good. So thank you very much. Um, uh, no, but um, completely unrelated, if you do get the team on from Lumen, I want to join that. Uh, I definitely want to join that discussion. Rachel, you mentioned um, Lumen there. I've not heard of Lumen. Can you, um, can you explain what it is? Uh, yeah, so Lumen is a device that helps you. Um, their kind of strap line is about hacking your metabolism. Um, so what, what you literally do is you're breathing into the device and you are. Um, it is tracking uh, the level of CO2, which is informing uh, where you are as to whether you need more carbs, more protein, more fat. Um, so you literally you'd wake up in the morning and you would kind of blow into this device and it would give you a view of, you know, what what you where you are at the minute. And based upon what you're planning on doing with the day, you can factor in if you're, you know, you're off for a weights workout or whatever. Um, and then during the course of the day, you kind of check back in with it. Uh, and um, it requires you to track macros uh, from a, you know, what you're eating perspective. But from a personal standpoint, I um I've been using it for the last 11 weeks um, and um, probably dropped, I don't know, about four kilos. Um, but when when I first got the device, I contacted them and said, this bloody thing's not working um, because it won't let me eat any carbs. Uh, and of course, the reality was that I was wanting to eat substantially more than uh, is probably needed for me. So after I got over the shock um, of the first couple of weeks, uh, I have to say it's fast becoming one of the most powerful tools I use to manage uh, manage my health a bit better. That's incredible. Um, what an amazing bit of technology. I'm just looking at it now. I am excited. I've never heard of this, but as, yeah, as someone who's massively um, a bit of a, a fitness freak, I've always sort of envisioned if there was anything that I wish existed, it was something that would tell me exactly what my body needs before I know that I need it, be it to drink more water, to eat more protein, more carbs. So I am going to come off and do some serious Googling after this. This sounds amazing. This is the joy of working in health tech, I think. There's so much amazing tech out there all of the time, and it's constantly evolving and constantly changing, and new things are coming out so consistently that even if you work right in the heart of health tech comms, someone can come on and be like, hey, check this life-transforming product out. So that's a genuine joy. Right. I think that is probably all we have got time for on this week's Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Rachel Murphy, it has, as ever, been a pleasure. Are you up to anything exciting in the near future? Anything you want to tell us about? You were off to Ukraine, weren't you? I am off to Ukraine. So I'm going out to Ukraine next Thursday with uh, Pip Hodgson uh, from NHSX uh, and another friend of mine, uh, Jack Barton. So we're heading out there. We will have raised about 15, 16 grand by the time we land next Thursday. And then we're going straight to uh, straight to the border to help out for a few days um, via various macro stores uh, to buy whatever's required. So, yeah, we're out there for three or four days. Um, so uh, hoping to uh, hoping to do our bit and, and stay safe. Meanwhile, is there anywhere people can donate to that? Is there any anything we can help with? 
there's a just giving link actually mate so i will share that with you and if we could share that out uh, when this goes out that'd be amazing yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have a look at the Just Giving link in the podcast description and on all of the Health Tech Pigeon socials. We'll get that out to you. That's a, what's the second time you've been out to Ukraine now? Third? Uh, second time. So we went out in April um, and uh, came back with COVID, hoping not to repeat that. Uh, but um, yeah, out for, the, uh, out for the second time. Best of luck. And as I say, we will put the Just Giving link in there. In We will put the Just Giving link on all of our socials and across everywhere this podcast is published. So I think that's all we've got time for. Rachel, thank you. A pleasure as always. My uh, my pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it and have a good uh, good rest of the day. Thank you very much. And Indy, thank you very much for joining us for your second Health Tech Pigeon podcast. That was the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Join us next week and check out all the articles we've talked about on some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com.